Let me start by asking you uh, this question. What makes you feel powerful? When do you feel powerful? I used to, uh, when I was in youth ministry, I used to play basketball with the sixth graders. And man, I felt so powerful. I would take those little shots and just toss them across the gym. I mean, I would block every layup. I would just hammer them. And I felt so powerful because I couldn't play basketball in high school. I wasn't big enough or tall enough. Maybe you feel powerful when you do a workout. Maybe you feel powerful when you get a raise and all of a sudden you feel a sense of, of power. Maybe you feel powerful when you get a promotion. Maybe you feel powerful when you have some kind of information about somebody that somebody else doesn't have. Maybe you feel powerful when you feel morally superior. You look at your neighbor or you look at a friend and uh, you feel like they don't have their act together, but I do. I feel, I feel powerful about that. Let me ask you another question. Do you have one? Do you, have, do you know what makes you feel powerful? Do you have it in your mind? You have to do this work with me. Here's the second question. What makes you feel powerless? Maybe it's uh, turn on the news and watching that storm start to rip through Louisiana. Maybe it's watching what's happening in Afghanistan. Maybe you feel powerless when you drop your daughter off at school. That's what I did this week. I dropped my daughter off at school. And you'll be surprised and maybe some of you pleased to know I didn't cry one time. I have no idea why. I didn't, I didn't drop a tear, which is rare for me. Until I got the bill from the bookstore. <laughs> Why an AP psychology book costs $275? Are they trying to make you go insane so they can diagnose you? I have no idea. But the whole thing is a, a roost. Maybe you feel uh, powerless when you get an illness. Or when you're married to somebody who won't love you. Maybe you feel powerless uh, when you go to school and your reputation's been tarnished, or maybe you feel powerless when you uh, get up in the morning and your body doesn't work the way that it used to, and you can't figure out why. It might be old age. It might be something else. Maybe you feel powerless, and powerlessness isn't bad. Maybe you feel powerless when you go to the beach. You look at that ocean, you look at those waves, and you realize it's been there a long time before you have been, and it's going to be a long time after, or the mountains. Now, the interesting thing is we feel powerful about the wrong things, and we feel powerless about the wrong things. See, here in this text, and all we're going to look at today is the denial of Peter. Three times in this text, he's going to deny Christ. But remember what happened in John chapter 13? In John chapter 13, he said, there's, there's no way I'm ever going to deny you. You don't know my moral vicissitude. You don't know my uh, tenacity. You don't know my grit. There's no, I would never deny you three times, Jesus. I'm more powerful than that. I'm going to follow you. I'm never going to deny you. And Jesus said, oh no, by, by the time the rooster crows, it's going to happen three times, Peter. And he found himself at the end of that, you know the story, but at the end of that, completely powerless. Until Jesus put them all back together in John chapter 21. And he found the power he didn't know he had. See, here's what the gospel does. The gospel takes the areas that you feel like you're powerful in. And it says, you actually have no power there. You're not powerful enough to defeat your sin. You're not powerful enough to love your wife. You're not powerful enough to forgive your enemy. You're not powerful enough to conquer death, hell, and the grave. You don't have any of that power. 
But then the gospel also says, but now that you know Jesus, you have the power of the Holy Spirit and you have the power of salvation and you can love your enemy when you ask God to help. And you can love your spouse when you ask God to help. And you can honor your parents, even though they might not deserve it, when you ask for help. And you can find a way to show forgiveness. And you can be gracious. And all of those things are at your disposal now with the Holy Spirit, which gives you the power to walk in his name. So the power that you had, that you thought you had, that you could do better, that you wouldn't have to repent, Now there's a greater power that God gives you. And that's what Peter realizes. And interestingly, his denial, three times denying who Christ is, doesn't rob Christ of his truth, his calling, and his love. See, sometimes here's the deal. We think that if we criticize or that if we have our doubts or that we have our dilemmas or we have our questions about Christianity, that somehow that diminishes who God is. But even with all three of these denials, it doesn't change God's uh, calling over him. It doesn't change God's truth over him. And it doesn't change God's love over him. All of those remain consistent. And so that's what we look at. First of all, that his denial was powerless over the truth of who Christ is. Look at verse 15 and 16. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went in and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You're also not one of those man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. I am not one of those, that man's disciple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here before, let's set the scene a little bit. If you look back in verse 18, we see that Jesus has already been arrested. And he's now put in the hands of a man named Anus. Anus is a guy who, he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And he used to be the high priest. Now Caiaphas is a high priest. So he's kind of a holding ground for Jesus in this period. But before that, before he goes into his hands, uh, there's this scene where they're capturing him and Judas is betraying him. And Peter pulls out the sword and he tries to cut off Malchus's ear. Probably was aiming for his head, slipped. We don't know what happened. There's a couple different theories on that. Not going to get into it right now. Jesus heals that. And then he says, Peter, put away your sword. What are you doing? Jesus goes off with the group to the house to start to be uh, interrogated. And here Peter is, wandering around, trying to get some news, trying to figure out how they're going to get him out. How are they going to post bail? How are they going to get Jesus out of this bad, awful situation that he's in? And at that moment, he finds himself wandering around with another disciple, most likely John, wandering around this courtyard. And there's this little servant girl there who just asks a pretty innocent question. You're, you're not one of those guys that follows that other guy that we have back there, are you? No, I'm not. So quick, just a servant girl, not even a person of power, not even a person of authority, just a little servant girl asking a this question and how quick we are when the pressure gets even minimal to distance ourselves from who Christ is. Maybe you've done that at work. I saw you praying before your meal. You're not one of those religious people, are you? No, I'm not not really that religious. You go to church. You don't believe in that like spaghetti monster in the sky, do you? 
I mean, no, I mean, I go to church, but it's just what our family has always done. I don't, you know, we're so quick to distance ourselves from the claims of Christ. Just a little servant girl here provokes it. But here's the reality. No matter what, when you deny or when Peter denies him, it still doesn't change the fact that what's true is true. When you deny the claims of Christ, it doesn't change the fact that those claims are still true. When you have your doubts about the claims of Christ, it doesn't change the fact that those claims are still true. See, truth is not dependent upon your acceptance of it. Truth is just truth. And so even though Peter denied this and denied that Jesus was the Christ, the fact of the matter is it's still true. When I talk to my non-Christian friends, I'll say, I know you have your doubts. I do too. I know you have your concerns about the Old Testament. I get it. Some passages are hard to understand. I know that you deny these claims of Christ, but truth doesn't change. You have to figure out what truth is. And this aspect of truth is going to go all the way through this text because next week, Lord willing, I'll probably preach on Pilate. And that's going to be the question before Pilate the whole time. Hey, these people say that he's the king of the Jews. These people say he's not. These people say that he's out to make this whole kingdom fall down. These people say he's not even trying to build a kingdom here. He has his own little kingdom that is spiritual in nature. And Pilate finally says, what is truth? What is truth? Who can tell us what truth is? So just because you might deny it, just because you might not believe it, just because you might have criticisms or doubts over truth, it doesn't change the fact that truth is still truth. C.S. Lewis says it this way when he says, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the words darkness on the walls of his cell. And isn't it good to know that we have a God who is truth? Because Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You don't have to wonder about what's true anymore. You don't have to try to figure out on your own anymore. I am the truth. Let's listen to my claims. And if you doubt my claims, if you deny them, if you don't believe them, these claims are still true. So why do we distance ourselves from God? Why do we so often deny him? Because in your heart and in my heart, what we want is to rebel against them. It's our sinfulness. We want to be able to do life on our own terms. And if we can somehow deny the truth claims of Christ, if we can somehow object to them, if we can somehow say there's not a broader truth, then we get liberty and we get to do whatever we want. Aldous Huxley highlighted this in 1937. He's an interesting character, but he wrote in Ends and Means, for myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. We objected to political and economic system because it was unjust. The supporters of these systems claimed that in some way they embodied meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. And there was an easy way of confronting these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in politic and erotic revolt. We would deny that the world would have any meaning whatsoever. See, if we could just deny that there's some kind of meaning, if we could be nihilists in a philosophical way, 
Uh, then we get to do whatever we want. But you can deny Huxley as much as you want to. The truth is still the truth. And that's the whole point of the scriptures is to help us understand in this world of misinformation, this world of our own echo chambers, this world where we think truth is only truth when we accept it as truth. The whole point of Christianity is to say, no, there's a truth outside of you, a book to guide you, an ancient path to, to show you the way, a people, martyrs and heroes of the faith that shows what it looks like to follow Christ day in and day out. Because we've got to know and live by what truth is. We have so much information coming at us. Do you realize that? I hope you do. I talk about this all the time. But your heart, first of all, in my heart, our hearts are not made for celebrity the way it's now. That's why people like Britney Spears have absolute breakdowns. Because our hearts don't have the capacity for celebrity on this level. They just, we're not made for that. We're not made to be known across the world. That's why Alexander the Great had a meltdown once he became the celebrity of the day. And your heart and my heart also isn't made to be able to absorb all the amounts of information that we're getting. They're just not made that way. We can't do it. We get too overwhelmed. So we have to live by some kind of truth. Uh, if you've ever sat with me in my office and talked with me about an issue in your life, and many of you have, uh, probably 50% of the time, I'll end up quoting to you a certain verse in Philippians. And uh, this week, my wife uh, actually told me that she had to quote this verse to somebody who was having a difficult time as well. Both of us use it all the time in just casual conversation. But when we're talking to somebody who's worked up, who's all spun up, whose world has no ground that you can kind of go to, you're unhinged from it because you want to be able to do whatever you want. You don't want any kind of truth. We'll often say, you have to think about these things, Philippians 4, 8. Whatever's true. You don't know that that cancer is going to kill you. You don't know that your husband's going to leave you. You don't know that you're going to be financially impoverished for the rest of your life. You don't know that to be true. You're, you're allowing your mind to believe that narrative. No, think about what's true, what's noble, what's right, what's pure, what's lovely, what's admirable, what's excellent, and what's praiseworthy. Think about those things. That's just scripture. Now, how are you going to get that in your mind unless you're reading scripture, unless you're reading truth on a regular basis and then you stumble across Philippians 4, 8 and you go, now, now I see how I live in this world with all of this information, with all of this coming at me. I have to think about what's true. I've got to think about what's noble, what's right, what's pure, what's lovely, what's admirable, what's excellent, and what's praiseworthy. So first of all, Peter's denial of Christ being the Christ and him being a disciple of Christ does not change the truth of it. Secondly, his denial of Christ does not change his calling. Look at verse 18 and then 25, if you would. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing, warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming themselves. So now, not knowing the exact time frame, but probably around midnight, 
uh, they start to build this fire. You just think of a big kettle. Uh, just, uh, just imagine hypothetically with me, just hypothetically, a college party in the field. And you go out to that college party, and if you go to a college party in the field, there's always going to be a fire, because guys like lighting things on fire. And there's going to be a fire there, and everybody's going to come around, and you're going to warm your hands. You're not even know the guys that are there. You might not know any of them, uh, because it's a party, and you just got there, and so you're all around this fire, but you want the comfort of that, and you're sitting there talking to them, and they're talking to you, and one of them says, you're not one of those disciples, are you? You with the funny accent from Galilee? You're not one of them too, are you? No, 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 no. You've got me mistaken for somebody else. Look what he says in verse 25. Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they said to him, You're also not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Interestingly, uh, we had to skip over verse 19 through 24, because in chapter 18 of John, there are two storylines happening simultaneously. There's the storyline of what's happening with Peter and his denial, and then there's the storyline of what's happening with Jesus, and they're being interwoven. And what's happening with Jesus this time is he was with uh, Annas until uh, the time where Caiaphas could get enough interrogators to have a trial. So they're going from house to house to house, knocking on doors. Hey, we heard that you might have interacted with Jesus. Do you have any dirt you can spill on them? Do you have anything that he said that was incriminating? Did he say he wanted to take down the Romans? Did he say he wanted to be the high priest? What can you tell us? So they're gathering all of these people. That's what's happening at Caiaphas' house. Finally, Jesus comes from Annas' house over to Caiaphas' house. And when he gets to Caiaphas, he's interrogated all night long. And that's happening while Peter is there denying him but fascinating even though peter denied jesus at this moment and denied that he was one of the disciples it didn't change the fact that he was still called to be a disciple because in john 21 he's going to be restored and even though at this moment he denies what he was called to do jesus is going to restore him and say hey do you love me Go feed my sheep. Go lead that church. Peter's going to become uh, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And his denial was not enough to stop that from happening. Um, You can deny what God wants for you in your life all day long, but it doesn't mean if you deny it, it's going to go away. Let me tell you, uh, if you're a new member, you've heard this story, but not all of you have heard this. Um, I don't think, I never wanted to be a pastor Um, I got a college friend in the room, and he would affirm nobody thought I would ever be a pastor. Um, But I never wanted to. Matter of fact, when Elizabeth and I were dating, I was a sophomore and she was a freshman. We went on our first date to this little Mexican place, and uh, I thought I was going to own restaurants be an entrepreneur, get a business degree, go into venture cap. And I think if I had told her that first date, hey, you know what? I really want to be a pastor of a Southern church. She would have said, well, this is a great date. I'll see you later. I denied it for as long as I could. I came here, did youth ministry for a couple years. I went to seminary, not because I wanted to be a pastor, still didn't want to be a pastor. I just thought if I go to seminary, I could get a degree in philosophy and then I can uh, teach at some prep school or maybe Furman and I can coach the golf team and that seems like a decent life but I definitely don't want to be a pastor and then halfway through seminary I finally came to Elizabeth and I said I got to have a hard conversation I don't want to have this conversation 
but I think God's calling me to pay a pastor. And she said, oh, I've known that for years. And that was her response. I was like, well, why didn't you tell me? Um, I mean, I think I knew too. But I was just denying it. But it didn't remove the call. Look, Jonah could say, I don't want to share the gospel with those people in Nineveh. I'm I'm going to even get thrown off a boat. No, the call is still there. You're still called to do it. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you want to do it or not. You can deny it all day long. The spies can say, we don't want to go into that land. We're scared if we go into those land. Those people are way too big. We're like grasshoppers. We're never going to defeat them. Doesn't matter. You're still called to go in there. So just because you might deny what God has called you to at this moment in your life doesn't mean that God's not still calling you to it, asking you to do it. Because you might be called to a hard situation right now. You might be called to grieve. You might be called to be a leader in your business, in the church, in your community. And you might say, I don't want that. I don't want that banner. I don't want to have to do that. Doesn't matter. You're still called to do it. You might be called to love an enemy. You might be called to share your faith with a neighbor. You might be called to support another family in need. You might be called in this phase of life to be generous. And, and you might say, I don't want to be generous. I don't have enough money yet. No, you're still called to it. doesn't matter if you deny it or not. I'm not ready to serve. doesn't matter. You're still called to it. See, the calling of God is on all of our lives. It's not just for missionaries and pastors. God is calling you right now to live for him in a certain way. And the question is, what is he calling you to? And are you trying to deny it? Or are you going to do life with him? Because what God wants us to do is all rise to a higher call for what we're called to be in this life. Look, Becca Jarrett, uh, she came into our MOT a couple nights ago. Becca Jarrett is on youth ministry staff with us, and the MOT is a ministry oversight team. And she came and she presented about how the junior high program is doing. And you know what she said? She, <laughs> this one is just awesome. I wrote it down. As soon as she said it in the MOT meeting, I wrote it down. She said, our students are above and beyond what the world says they should be. They have a different calling. The world says they should be promiscuous. The world says they should sell out Christianity. The world says that that generation, your generation is just lazy. It's never going to make anything of itself. The world says you just seek for comfort. The world says, and Becca says, no, our students in this church, they're above and beyond what the world says they should be. They have a different calling, a calling like 1 Timothy 4. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, but set an example for all believers in life and love and faith and speech and purity. That's just the truth of God's word. And when you're a high schooler and you realize, I don't have to let people look down. I can actually set an example. That's truth. That's a calling for you. And this happening. Look, do you know our fifth graders at this church, our fifth graders write letters to shut-ins? And so uh, one Wyatt Driscoll his pen pal was Herb Cruz, and we just buried Herb last week. And he wrote a letter to Herb Cruz. He didn't get a chance to post it and mail it to him, but here's what the letter said. Our fifth graders writing shut-ins. Who does that in this world? Mitchell Road kids, too. Uh, he said this, Mr. Herb, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're having a great summer. I'm praying for you. Love, Wyatt. 
And Herb is having a great summer. He's with the Lord. He's, he's having the best summer he's ever had in his entire life. But I just love that. Because we don't have to give in to what the world says we're called to. We have a different calling than that. You know, we were at that graveside service, and at that graveside service where we put uh, Herb in the ground, his daughter Beth read a letter. I, it was just She gave a beautiful, beautiful talk. Uh, she read a letter that Herb's father wrote to Herb, basically saying, you're called to something else in this life. And uh, Beth was kind enough to give the letter to us. This is 1949, a couple years after Herb was a bomber in World War II. A couple years after that, he gets this letter from his dad as he's figuring out where he's going to go in life. And here's what it is. I think it's on the screen. Remember, son, you cannot alone accomplish much in the short space of a lifetime, but with the help and cooperation of others, you and they can't be a powerful force that can accomplish much. Finally, son, don't take yourself too seriously. (laughs) I love that. Any individual is small in comparison to this old world. And when you begin to feel how important you are, I'll insert how powerful you are. When you begin to think that you've got it all together and you don't need help from Jesus and you don't need the Holy Spirit to guide you, that you've got the power to love the way you need to love, when you begin to get there, how powerful you are, Uh, how mighty your decisions, you're headed for a cruel fall. Better drive to the mountains and feel their majestic silence and observe how little time or man has changed them. Or go to the seashore and observe the inevitable is the tide. In spite of all of the efforts of man, you must develop a spirit of tolerance. How is that word going to be used in 1949? You must develop a spirit of tolerance. And look at this. Remember the responsibility of tolerance rests with the one with the great power of knowledge and of understanding. Now let me interpret that for us in our cultural times. You're called to something higher than the rest of the world. You have a spirit of tolerance. Why? Because you have a power and a knowledge that others don't. What do I mean by that? The reason why you're kind to your political enemies is this. Because you know that you're talking to an eternal being. They don't know that. They think this world is all there is. But you have the knowledge and you have the truth to know that there's much more than this flesh and blood world. That we're fighting against principalities and powers. And that these are eternal things and weighty matters. And because you have that knowledge, then you have a spirit of tolerance. Because you're called to something else. You're called to something higher. Because we're Christians. You don't throw the temper tantrum with a two-year-old. Because you have a greater knowledge that they're going to get over it pretty soon. He goes on to say, I can give you no better code than these words taken from the book of Micah. He has shown you, O man, what's good and what the Lord has required of thee. But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. There's a calling. There's a calling for all of us. You can avoid that. You can deny that all you want. You can play the games of gossip. You can play the games of slander. You can think that this world is all about you getting your comforts and your needs and your preferences met. Or you can say, God, what truth do I need to believe this week? And what are you calling me to? And would I be willing to walk into that with you, with your Holy Spirit, to whatever that is? And then lastly, 
This denial is powerless over love. Just verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. It's very interesting. It kind of goes, uh, not enough time to talk about this, but it goes from a servant girl to some uh, men officials now to a relative of Malchus. It, it works from this, you would think it worked the other way, but it doesn't. First of all, the little servant girl he couldn't be truthful with. Then the guys he couldn't be truthful with. And now this guy he can't be truthful with. And we don't know it from this passage, but from the passage in Luke, it says, at this moment, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. He was coming, apparently, out of Caiaphas's house with the bruises starting to form on his face. And at some point, the rooster crows, and Jesus looks at Peter. I would have loved to have known what that look was. I don't think it was condemning. I think it was probably... God, you can trust me, Peter. I'm right about your sin. I'm right about all things. I am the truth. You can listen to me, Peter. I'm going to put you back together. I think it was probably a look like that, a knowing look. And then it says in Luke chapter 23, he wept bitterly. And at this point, Peter still didn't understand the grace and the love of God, the fullness of it, until he's going to get restored in John chapter 23. Now, let me just say this, friends. You might think you're cut out of God's love. Maybe you think you've sinned too much. Maybe you think you're not good enough. Maybe you think you've asked for forgiveness one too many times. Maybe you're denying that he really loves you. It doesn't change the fact that he does. Let me put it more bluntly. Your sin this week, your, your failures this week, they're not the end of the world. They really aren't. It's not the end of the world. Your sin and your failure this week is the beginning of life. It's the beginning of repentance. It's the beginning of coming to a God who is going to love you no matter what. Because you know what? That 19-year-old, we dropped off in Birmingham to a bunch of heathen guys that are going to ask her out. <laughs> uh, what Chuck Swindoll said, he said, we're, no, we're nowhere close to this, but he said, uh, you know, when you give your daughter to a guy in marriage, it's like handing a Stradivarius violin to a gorilla. And it, it feels that way, doesn't it? But that little, that little uh, 19-year-old girl that we dropped off, um, now that she's not at Mitchell Road, I can tell all kinds of stories about her. And one is this, when that 19-year-old girl was 18 years old, or 8 years old, you know what she said to me when she was 8? She said, Dad, you don't love me, and I hate you. And I, you know what I said? I said, <laughs> okay. It doesn't matter to me one bit what you think of me. Or your love for me. Because you can deny it all you want, Kate. It's not going to change my love for you. And you can think that God doesn't have forgiveness and love waiting in the wings for you. But he does. And, and you can deny the grace of God, but he still wants to give it to you. 
Because here's what Kierkegaard says, and this is the one of the most crucial definitions of the whole of Christianity, that the opposite of sin is not virtue, but faith. That when you sin, when Peter, you're weeping bitterly, you're like, I'm a failure, I can't get it together. You know, after the second denial, don't you think Peter thought, okay, two times, but surely not the third time. But after the third time and the rooster crows, he's like, I can't get that crow sound out of my ears. It's not more virtue that he needs. It's faith to know that Jesus was going to forgive him. So you replace that sound of the rooster with the cry of love from the cross of Christ. You got to get out that sound of, oh, you're a failure. This rooster crow that continues to play through your mind. You're, you're never going to have any power to conquer that sin. You're never going to change. You got to replace that with the cry from Christ at the cross because that's the cry of love. And yes, look at your sin, but then hear the cry of love for you from the cross that it is finished. Last quote, Thomas Brooks says, we Christians are afraid of the shadow of the cross. But the weakest of Christians are the ones that run to it and live there and bask in it and say, God, what's the truth I need this week to believe? Because there's too much information coming at me. And, and what are you calling me to do? And now would you remind me again of your love? Friends, I'm going to stop there. But like I said, you got to do the work. It's not just me up here preaching. I've done the work. Now you got to do the work. So I'm going to give you some minutes to think about it. What's the truth you need to believe this week about who God is? What's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy? Think on these things. What do you need to think about? What truth? What's God calling you to in life right now? And are you trying to deny that? Are you trying to get away from that somehow instead of just walking through it? And then lastly, would you be willing to rest in his always-consuming love for you? Let me give you some time to pray. I'll close this. Father, we need truth. In this world of uh, all kinds of information, uh, we need the ancient book, the ancient path, uh, the one that has been proven out to be true, the prophecies about Christ that 2,000 years later came to be true, uh, the red line that is scripture of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. We need your truth, and we need to scour your Bible to hold on to the truth, the, the things that you tell us in your word uh, that we need to cling to and grab onto. And so give us your truth. And Father, we need to, uh, we've been trying to straight arm your calling and what you want us to do in life. But, Father, we, uh, as much as we deny it, we're still called to whatever situation, relationship, 
maybe it's the lack of relationship. Maybe it's singleness. And we don't want it, but we're called to it. Uh, maybe it's uh, a tough road ahead. Maybe it's grief. Maybe it's a trial. Uh, maybe it's, uh, like we mentioned, generosity because you've blessed. But whatever you call us to, Father, may we to listen to what that calling is and walk into it instead of denying it. And Father, we so often deny your love. We either try to earn it or we think we could never earn it or we seek to replace it with other loves in this world rather than your love for us. But may we love the shadow of the cross. Instead of listening to that rooster remind us that we're a failure, may that rooster remind us that we need Christ, you. And may that cry of love on the cross of Christ be what resonates through our ears today. And may that cause us to rejoice, and may that cause us to worship. And uh, may we, even as we sing the song, we're bound for the promised land, we remember that uh, we're made for eternal things, and so are our neighbors, and so are our enemies. And so these truths that we sing, that we remind each other of, take us from this journey from Sunday to Sunday until we can meet back and remind each other one more time that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ, you are coming again. So, Father, we pray that sickness, sorrow, pain, and death will soon be filled no more, but until that time, may we share and bask in the gospel of Christ for us. We